You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so let me frame this this Redeemed Family series uh, really, really quickly for us uh, so that uh, we kind of know where where all of this is coming from. So uh, again, I just mentioned right now that we kind of belong to what we would call a family of churches um, that all sort of fall underneath this this Sojourn name, right? Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, soon to be Sojourn Galleria. And as a family of churches, we have essentially identified five values, five things that that we think are, are important, that the, that the Bible speaks into, that the Bible ultimately redeems in and through the person and work of Jesus. And those things are uh, strategic church planting, uh, justice and mercy, the integration of faith and work, creative expression, and then, of course, finally, uh, the, the redeemed family. And so if you want more information about those, go to sojourncollective.org. I'm not going to describe each and every one of them right now, but suffice it to say that the redeemed family, this particular thing that we're going to talk about for the next four weeks is one of those. And, and as we grow and as we move forward, we'll, we'll continue to take times where we talk through each one of those values so that we know where those come from. But essentially what we're doing here is we're uh, attempting to, from the Bible, take a look at how through Jesus, we now experience healthy biological and spiritual families. So we'll spend four weeks uh, providing an introduction to this value that we share with these other churches as we cover really various topics, right, Um, involved in becoming one healthy spiritual family that's comprised of many different units, right? Um, And so those topics will include singleness and dating, marriage, parenting, and, and beyond. And we're going to spend really that whole four weeks in Ephesians chapter 5 and a little bit of Ephesians chapter 6. And, and to set us up for that, let me just say this really quickly. Um, so, so we're jumping right into really not even the middle of a book, but the end of a, of a book of the Bible. And so uh, you would do yourself a great favor to go home today after this gathering and read those first four chapters. Because much of what we're going to read this morning is, is an, an Im, um, imperative, which is, is what we must do, right? It's action that, that we must take. But it is read ultimately in light of the indicative which comes before, which is who we are, right? So Paul is, is usually pretty masterful about that, and he, that he will tell us who we are, what Jesus has done, and then he'll tell us what we must do in light of that. So let's not look at these next four weeks, right? as simply a morality to live up to, but let's look at it as what flows naturally out of what Jesus has already done in our hearts by His grace. It's the full expression. These, these two chapters are the full expression of what we read and cherish so much in Ephesians chapter 2, right? It's that, that part of the Bible that tells us that once we were dead, but because of God's great mercy, we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. And that, that that gift is something that's been given to us by grace through faith, not of works so that none can boast, right? So all of that is still true as we walk into this portion that tells us to be imitators of God, to walk in love, and then explains for us what that looks like, right? So that's where that, that comes from. So this morning, um, we're going to kind of look at and zero in on that one particular word from, from verse 1 that says, be imitators of God. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, I, I, I think that 
it's pretty obvious, or maybe it's just really obvious to me right now because I have a, a, a 10-week-old child, but we were born to imitate. We were born to imitate, right? That's why when, and it's so weird to, on Sunday morning, be doing this because normally I'm kind of like looking, you know, looking over my sermon, like have, have much more sort of prep time and like chilling with some coffee and stuff, but now it's consumed with like making sure my baby doesn't hurt herself, you know? Um, but it's awesome because I'll sit and I'll kind of prop her up on my legs where she's looking at me in the face and I'll, and I'll say, say hello. And she'll go, uh. Which is relatively unimpressive, right? In that she's not actually saying hello, but she's imitating, right? She's imitating. She's even now already begin to, beginning to imitate. When I smile, she'll smile. When I make O face, she'll make an O face. When I, when I you know, move my hands a certain way, she'll she'll do that same thing, right? We were, we were born to imitate, made to imitate. But unfortunately, as we all know and, and, and probably can see, that doesn't always work out super well for us. And so we'll see how the Lord um, works in and through that in our lives this morning. Let me pray before we jump into Ephesians 5. Father God, we love you. Um, we're grateful to be here this morning. I pray, Father, that... Um, Although we are young, Lord, not, not just in age, but, but in existence as a church, Lord, that you would um, make the word family be something that describes us in reality, not just in an idea. Lord, that this would not just be uh, sort of some, some out there um, philosophy that, that we can't really attain, but Lord, that it would become a reality through our love for one another. And Lord, I pray that as that happens, Lord, that it would be something that is glorifying to you and an outward sign, Father, that, that what Jesus does in and through his people is real and different. I pray, Lord, that you would do that this morning through this text, through the words that I speak, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So the human, the human family was created ultimately to imitate the heavenly family. That's, that's what we're going to see here, right? So we're just going to break down these two verses very, very slowly, and we're just going to take that first phrase that says, therefore, be imitators of God, right? So we can already tell in our nature, like even just when I'm playing with my daughter, that we were born to imitate, right? And this ultimately is what we were made to imitate, to imitate God. Now, let me, let me give, give some definition for that, and this is going to feel kind of quick because we've got to essentially get a, a biblical theology of, of imitation and family and what all that looks like. So we can't camp here too long, but right? So Paul says this, be imitators of God. All right, the first thing we probably have to do is define God so much as he can be defined, right? Now we can't camp here too long, but the Bible tells us that we have one God, but that he exists, right, in three persons, what we know as the Trinity or the Trinitarian family. Now, some of us may not have thought of one God operating in three persons as being a family. Maybe, maybe that seems like a, a, a colloquial or informal way to refer to God. But I'm not just using this metaphor to describe God sort of to make a point. Or because we titled the series Redeemed Family, now I'm going to say, well, God's kind of like a family. The reality is 
that God could have chosen any language to describe himself, and yet he describes himself first and foremost, most often throughout the Bible as what? Father. Jesus, first and foremost, most often characterized as what? Son. Not only Father, not only Son, but Spirit. So in the Godhead, right, we see three persons operating as a family. Now, the human family is created to image or to imitate this same family, right? That's the the phrase that I opened with after I prayed. Now, here's what I mean by that. So if we've read Genesis 1 and 2, we've, we've sort of read the creation story, we know that God creates all these wonderful things, and at the conclusion of each day, He comes to the, the end of that day and He says that it's good, that He looked out over all that He created and He saw that it was good. But there was only one time when it wasn't, and that was when He created man. Because here's the thing, it tells us, right, in the Bible, that, that God says this, let us make man in our own image, right? And it says that in his image, he created them. And yet he arrives to this solitary man, this, this, this creation that he's created, and he says that it's not good. Why? Well, because to be made in God's image means we cannot be isolated, because God has never been isolated. Again, let us make man in our own image. If God is one, if God is isolated, if God is singular, then how is that possible to even begin using that kind of wording? Right? So it's God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Spirit operating together as one God, as a family. And they look at God and they say, or they look at man and they say, it's not good for the man to live alone. In essence, in order for man to bear God's image, he cannot do so in isolation. So, what does God do? He creates the first human family, right? He creates Eve, and Adam looks at Eve, and he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, at last, right? So, if the primary metaphor for God is family, like, then it would follow that this is kept in, or this is in keeping with the way he creates his image-bearing human family. And then it follows that the primary metaphor for the church is also family. Sinclair Ferguson would put it this way, the most important picture of the church in the New Testament is that of a family. So we are called to, in this text, to be imitators of God, to operate like God in the context of a family, right? So here's the thing. We've seen both from Scripture, one that we were called, created to be imitators, right? To be image bearers, right? To, like God, have dominion over the earth. We also see it just naturally around us that whether we have children or or even whether we ourselves have people we look up to, that we naturally have a propensity to imitate. And so I think what we can quite clearly come to a conclusion on is that the question is not if we will imitate, but the question is who will we imitate? Now let's, let's read 5.1, the latter half. 
says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Right? So there's the, there's the theological impetus for the assertion that I just made, right? If God is Father, if Jesus is Son, if we are adopted children, sons, daughters, as children, we should imitate our Father. But how? And verse 2 is going to tell us that. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. We imitate God by following, ultimately, the family rules, right? Summed up in one word, love. So beyond the mushy, like Jerry Maguire, you complete me, rom-com definition of love, what really is love, right? If we are to imitate God as his beloved children by walking in love, what does it mean to love? Well... This is what verse 2 will tell us. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Here's what, here's what Paul is doing, right? He's, he's leading us right down this path. He's leading us right, right into this answer. Walk in love as Christ loved us. So he's not just giving us, right, some, some ethereal, like, philosophy of, like, this is what love looks like. This is how you feel when you love, right? It's that tingly feeling in your heart when you get excited because you're holding that person's, right? Not, it's not a, none of those things. It's nothing, it's nothing subjective, right? It's objective. He says, walk in love as Christ did it. And so he references a real world, real life, in human flesh, example, definition for what love looks like. And I think we can sum it up this way. Love is others-oriented. Because chiefly, the, the life and work of Jesus was others-oriented, right? I'm going to turn, it's just one page over in my Bible. It might be just one for you too, but I'm going to go to Philippians chapter 2. And if you've heard me preach, you know that I, I quote this regularly, but I want to spend a little bit of time in it. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, this is, this is what it tells us about Jesus' life, right? It says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, right, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So all of Jesus' existence, as, as we can see quite clearly, is others-oriented in that even though he was God, even though he was equal with God, Philippians tells us that he didn't consider that something worth sort of holding on to or grasping on to. But it says that he was willing to release that, to humble himself, to be made into the form of a man, to be found obedient, to humble himself even to death, death on a cross. For what? For you and me. But here's the thing. The cross isn't just orient, uh, others-oriented in what Jesus does for us. It's others-oriented even in the family that he belonged to from the beginning. 
Because when we see Jesus praying before he goes to the cross, what does he say? It's, a, it's famous words. We, we all know them. We've heard them before. Not my will, but yours be done. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to his father. All of what Jesus is, all of what Jesus accomplishes and does ultimately is others-oriented. He's about the work of his Father. That's what he says regularly throughout the accounts of his life in the Gospels, right? I'm about the will of my Father. These are not my words. They are my Father's. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus was others-oriented, and thus we can clearly see through his life and through his death and through his resurrection that love is defined by an orientation toward the other rather than ourselves. So, if the fullest expression of love and abiding of the family rules is an others-oriented event, meaning the cross, right? Jesus, fo Jesus is following the family rules by loving us so much that he's willing to self-deprecate, then it follows that the church also is others-oriented rather than oriented upon itself, right? That's why if you go back just a couple of verses before those few verses in Philippians chapter 2, this is what Paul says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, there's that word again, being in full accord and not of one mind. And here he's going to describe love. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Is that, is that not what Jesus has done? I mean, if anybody had the right to be conceited, you would think it would be Jesus. First and only Son of God the Father, equal with God, in glory with the Father. Like, I feel like most of us, that would be something that we would grasp onto, right? And yet it tells us that Jesus didn't do anything from selfishness or from vain conceit. But instead, he considered others more than he considered himself. The glory of God, the glory of the Father, the well-being of the people of God, those whom he purchased redemption for through his blood. He is constantly, consistently measuring the events of his life in light of the good of others. So, but here's the problem, right? So we've kind of raced through this, this, this mini like biblical theology of what it means to, to be the family of God and what it means to be imitators of God in loving like God, right? But the reality is, if you've been in church for any, any length of time, you know that we often find ourselves not imitating God and not being loving. In fact, some of you are sitting in here this morning, um, and, and maybe you, you don't really know if you believe the whole Jesus thing, and part of it is precisely because the church doesn't act the way it says it should, right? 
Well, here's the problem. We don't imitate God because we were born imitating Adam. And for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, back in Genesis, that same, that same book that I was quoting for earlier, when God creates Adam, right, he creates Adam to rule underneath God's rule, right, as a representative for God, but not to be equal with God. He's an image bearer. Everything that he has has been given to him by God in order to proclaim God's goodness and worth. But unfortunately, what we see is that he's, he's compelled by his own self-good, so much so that he's willing to say, God, even though you've given me all of this, even though you've given me not only an earth to tend, creatures to abide, and a wife and family to love and to serve, I don't think that's enough. In essence, there's a chance you might be holding out on me, right? I mean, that's ultimately what the serpent says, right, is, is did God really say that? Well, he's just worried that if you get a taste of this, then you'll be like him. And of course, in that moment, right, Adam falls. He elevates self over God. He elevates self over the common good as well, right? Adam and Eve both in that same moment fall prey to what we so often fall prey to. And here's what then makes this so tricky, right? Here's what throws the wrench in all of the gears, is that if, if the family rules in God's house are that, we, are that we love one another, if that's how God existed before us and that's how he created to exist with him, when selfishness gets involved, love becomes impossible because selfishness is the exact opposite of other-oriented. It is self-oriented. One cannot be selfish and loving because love is defined by selflessness. At least that's what the Bible would posit. And here's really where, where the rub is, I think, for us, especially with, with our current cultural um, identity. See, I think we've, we've tried, we, we, we try to sanitize things generally. Like when something is, is offensive or has the potential to be offensive, we kind of put it in pretty or colorful language so that it's less offensive, right? I think we've all experienced that to some degree. So we call, we call it individualism, right? And it's one of the great pillars of our country, isn't it? Our country was founded on, on, on God, individualism. Those two, things aren't, those two things aren't compatible. So individualism is an American value, but it's certainly not a Christian value. And this is where we, this is where we begin to experience the rub because our our culture, right, the, the American worldview has told us that it's all about you, that it's about your life, it's about your liberty, it's about your happiness, and that all of those things were founded on Christian values, which is just not true. Now, I'm not saying that life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness is necessarily a bad thing, but I'm saying when that becomes ultimate even in the church, we betray, we betray that which God created us for, which was to be a family in which love takes place, not individual service of our own needs. 
All right, before I get off on a rant, let me get to the next point. All right, so what we should have seen thus far, right, is that, is that biblically speaking, from Genesis, the human family was created to imitate the heavenly family. We have, a, we have an innate sense, an innate desire to imitate, so the question is not if we will imitate, but who, right? And we've seen that the problem with that is that we imitate the wrong person, that we imitate Adam, that we elevate self over God that we imitate Adam instead of God. But here's the beautiful story of the gospel, of the Bible, of the whole Christian worldview, and that is that our imitation is redeemed and refocused in the context of a new family. So let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, one more time. It says this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, here's the thing. That last phrase in there is, is probably a little bit weird for us in that none, I don't think any of us have recently um, offered any kind of fragrant offering to God in the literal sense, right? So the question then becomes, like, what, where does this image come from? And it's actually really significant, and it ties in... To, to the entire narrative of the Bible. And that if we turn back to that book, Genesis, that I was talking about, in chapter 8, there's something really significant that happens. And this is what takes place. So we know that from Adam, the world continues to devolve. Ultimately, it gets so bad that God decides to destroy with a flood. He rescues one man and his family out of it, and then the flood subsides, and this is what takes place. Verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt sacrifices or offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So you're probably wondering to yourself, like, all right, what, like, you're everywhere, right? But let's just think of it this way briefly, point by point. Genesis 1, God creates a perfect family as an image of his perfect family, right? He creates Adam and Eve. They're joined together, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh, right? This beautiful moment in Scripture, a perfect family. But then Genesis 3, right, which is after Adam and Eve take of the fruit, they do what God told them not to do. It tells us what? That a curse has come upon them and that now the wife's desire will be for her husband, right? And not like in the, the, the fun way that most husbands in here would be like, yes, that's good. But in the way of like a desire to usurp, a desire to create division and tension, right? And for the man, right? You, your labor will be a toil. It will no longer be a joy anymore. Your relationship with your wife will, will be fractured, will be splintered because of your selfishness. And of course, we see the ongoing effect of that fall in Adam 
and Eve's family. Cain murders Abel, right? And we see that continue to devolve. I mean, that's what Genesis is all about. It's not condoning these acts. It's saying, this is what happens. This is what happens. But then in Genesis 8, God redeems Noah's family in order to create a new family, right? Ultimately, their descendants will become Israel, the the people of God. But here's the thing. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that 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 people, time after time after time, fails to imitate God and fails to walk in love. And so God sends His Son, Jesus. He sends His Son, Jesus, a member of His own family, right, to come and live the life we couldn't live, to come and die the death that we should have died. In it, right, He imitates God perfectly, He loves perfectly, and then He is sacrificed as a perfect representation of all that we should have been. And in that instance, it tells us that Jesus then creates a whole new family, that there's neither Jew nor Greek anymore, that there's neither male nor female, there's neither slave nor free, but that now we all belong to one another in Christ Jesus, that in the church he's created the new and perfect family that has been redeemed through the person and work of his Son. So Jesus redeems broken families by creating a new family. And the ongoing effect of the cross is redeemed families, not only only in the context of the church, but also in the context of our biology, our biological families, that we can experience redemption in those families in and through the person and work of Jesus. And then, of course, if we just jump to Revelation, we know that history culminates in what was the first familial event, right? Like Genesis chapter 1, God creates the first family. It's a wedding. And Adam takes Eve to be his bride. And it tells us that at the end of history that Jesus will take his church as his bride and that they will be made one. God is redeeming a family. So here's how that applies then to us as the church, right? The church is a countercultural family because it is intensely other-focused as opposed to centered on self. Within the church family, many families become one, all loving and serving the other because the other now belongs to them in Jesus. The church is also countercultural because in it we cultivate imitation of Jesus rather than continuing to imitate Adam. We do this because we please God, but also because we flourish. Right? That's ultimately what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 means when it says a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It means that when the church operates as a redeemed family, when we imitate God by loving one another, that God is pleased by that. That God's name is made more honorable through that. That Jesus is made to be more real, to be more gracious, to be more powerful when we operate like that. But here's the craziest thing about about God in my mind, is that although he has every right to demand everything that pleases him, 
He does it in such a way that as we please Him, we flourish. Isn't that crazy? Like if anybody had just the right to kind of enslave the masses and have them do His bidding all day, every day, it would be God. And yet, and yet in so being pleased through us, He also causes us to flourish. And here's, here's kind of what I mean by that. And we're, we're, we are wrapping up here in case you're lagging. <laughs> this, is, this is the language from, from our collective website that I, I, I just want to read word for word because this is how all of this comes to be a reality at Sojourn. Like this is how practically we operate as the redeemed family at Sojourn. This is how we, a part of how we imitate God by loving one another, right? This is what it says. Scripture describes the church as the household of God. We are His children, His family. So it's our joy and honor to demonstrate redeemed family to a world of broken families. We believe healthy spiritual and biological families are the bedrock of a healthy society. Thus, we intend to provide Sojourn Houston churches with premarital, marital, and family counseling, foster and adoption support and services, and well-trained, well-resourced neighborhood parishes which function as the spiritual families within which biological families grow and thrive. I know that's kind of wordy, so I'll just give you the, the three things, right? So the first thing, the first thing that we intend to provide at Sojourn is, is counseling, right? In, in essence, all we're saying in that is that we want to get involved in people's lives. We want to get involved in people's marriages. We want to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on those so that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can bear with one another. Because we believe that God's heart for marriage, for family, is that we would be united in the same way that God's family is united. And so Sojourn is going to provide those opportunities, right? We're going, to, we're going to provide counseling opportunities for those of us who are struggling and for those of us who maybe we just need to talk some stuff out within our families, with our parents, with our children, with our wives, with our husbands, with our fellow family members in the body of Christ. The second thing we're going to do, right, is, is provide adoptions and foster care support and services. Now, what does that have to do with anything, right? Well, in order to not get on a rant, let me just say this. Um, as someone who was adopted, and not only by my parents here on earth, but as someone who was adopted by God the Father, there might be no more tangible, tangible, visible expression of the gospel than taking those who do not have a family and giving them a family in ours. And so one of the ways, one of the ways that we're going to show how God redeems families, how God makes families out of, out of people that weren't family is by taking the orphan, is by taking the fatherless, the motherless, and giving them a father and a mother. And then third and finally, we're going to train and resource our neighborhood parishes to function as spiritual families within which our biological families grow 
and thrive, understanding that here's the reality. Some of you this morning, your family is broken. And it's broken more than, than you want to address. It's broken more than you want to look at. It's broken more than you want to acknowledge. It's broken more than you want to think about. And yet, if you are a Christian this morning, what the Bible is telling you and what the Bible offers you in and through Jesus is a new family that is redeemed more than any earthly family will ever experience, that is headed towards a reality that is devoid of suffering, that is devoid of tears, that is devoid of pain, and that God himself will wipe that tear from your eye. And so we live right here and now in a time where, where, where that's what God is accomplishing in us. So when God says, right, that he's faithful to complete the good work that he's begun in you, he's not just talking about that on an individual level. But he's going to complete the good work that he's begun in us here at Sojourn. Are we a perfect church? No, we said so right at the beginning right? We humbly admit we're an imperfect church, but our hope this morning is that you would taste and see the perfection of Jesus because the perfection of Jesus is ultimately what leads us to the perfection in the new heaven and the new earth where all families are redeemed, united underneath the person and the work of Jesus. And so if you're not a believer in the room this morning, and, and maybe your family is broken the way we described earlier, that's what we're inviting you into um, when, when we invite you to gather with a neighborhood parish. Because you won't experience the fullness of what God intended you to experience in his family just on a Sunday. This is a part of what our family does, but this is not all our family does. And we want you to be a part of our family. And we really believe that in witnessing that and in seeing that and watching us forgive one another and watching us bear with one another and watching us bear one another's burdens and watching us be gentle with one another, kind with one another, gracious with one another, all these things that the New Testament tells us to do that in that you will see that the gospel is in fact powerful to change selfish people into people who imitate God by loving others. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather together this morning uh, as the family of God, your very family. And Father, for those of us who are Christians in the room, I pray, Lord, that we would rejoice that we have a family that runs deeper than blood, a family that will exist beyond our time here, a family that will exist into eternity, and a family that will be known for the imitation of God and the love of others so that all the relational friction that we experience with you because of our sin and all of the relational tension that we experience with one another because of our sin will be gone. Lord, would you make that day come quickly? And Father, for those of us who are not Christians in the room this morning, I, I pray, Father, that if they're hurting, that you would meet them in their hurt. That if the, the, the pain of a broken family is too much to bear, that they would stop trying to bear it. I pray, Father, that you would help us as sojourn to extend the hands of grace. 
as a broken but being redeemed family that will once and for all experience full and final redemption in your presence. Lord, we we worship you because this truth is good. We worship you because this gospel is good. We worship you because in it, God, you are sorting out all that is wrong. Reconciling us to the knowledge of you. Reconciling us to your presence in such a way that is great, glorious, and honorable. Lord, we thank you for all these things and for everything else that is good. We know that it is all from you. And as we celebrate communion, God, may we be reminded of just everything that your sacrifice accomplished on our behalf. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.